Well, you guys, it is uh, a distinct honor to be able to introduce you to our good friend Josh White from Door of Hope Church in Portland. Can you guys put it together for Josh? Josh is uh, one of the, the, the pastors in Oregon, one of the few pastors that I um, just love learning from and am so honored to know because I know his life. I know the way that he lives his life faithful to the Lord Jesus and in probably one of the toughest neighborhoods in one of the toughest cities in the United States. He is messaging the gospel and leading a robust, vibrant family um, following after Jesus. And it is so incredible to be sort of a bystander and be able to see your work from afar. And, and, and I know that you will be so blessed. He's such a deep thinker, uh, very different uh, from for me, which I know you'll really love the, the, just the difference in his voice and his leadership. And he's also here because he has released his first book, which I have been so excited uh, for for these last couple years. It's called Stumbling Toward Eternity. And the last time Josh was here, he let me read one of the early chapters and as he was kind of working it out, and it was genuinely everything that I hoped it would be from Josh. I know that you're going to enjoy this book. So we actually have about 50 copies that you can buy for $15 after the gathering. Um, and you are, this is a pre-release. This is the first time Josh has even seen his book. And you're the first ones to be able to buy it. He hasn't even released it to his church yet. You can't get it on Amazon, but you can get it here, which is really awesome. So thank you so much for bringing 50 copies for us. We love you, man. Thanks for being here. Put it together one more time. Josh White. Thank you. I don't like preaching uh, with a handheld, but that, the, I also have weird ears. And those mics just don't stay on me. They fall off, and then they get in my beard and make terrible noises. So... Uh, Phil, you teach really well with a handheld. Yeah, I, I don't, I never did that. I didn't do that well. I would rather like, if I could set it down and then just talk from afar. I don't I just always feel like I should be doing this when I, when I only, <laughs> it's my early music days. Um, well, hey, it is uh, so good to be with you. Um, as Andrew said, I did, uh, this is kind of a big deal for me in that, actually Diane Comer, um, Phil's wife, uh, encouraged me years ago when I worked uh, at Solid Rock, which became a Jesus church, which became Westside and Bridgetown and all those things. Uh, and I believe this church was planted out of that. Um, so I started, I left Solid Rock uh, in 2009, about probably about six months before John Mark set out to do Bridgetown and started Door of Hope. Uh, and um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite, quite a journey. But I remember speaking uh, on a Sunday morning at Solid Rock and Diane came up to me and she's like, you need to write a book. And I was like, I'm like, well, secretly I am, I am but I, I, don't, I, I always have held really deeply to Tozer's statement. He said that no person, and I wish more Christians would heed this, um, no person should read or write a, write a book unless there's a message that burns so deeply in their heart that they cannot rest until it comes out. And, uh, and for me, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I also am a... a a, fan, a fanatical reader of literature and, and, and poetry. And I, I remember telling a couple Christian publishers that approached me in the early days when Door of Hope was first exploding. They're like, like, we'd like to sign you. And I'm like, you don't even know if I can write. And they're like, that doesn't matter. And I'm like, that's everything that's wrong with this thing. <laughs> and I'm like, don't sign any more young pastors unless they've at least read Moby Dick. That was, my, that was actually my advice to her. And she didn't listen to me. Um, so uh, stumbling toward eternity 
is, is kind of my, my life message. And it took me two years to write. It was a very painful process. It almost unhinged me at Door of Hope. It almost unhinged my marriage um, because uh, it's a combination of both um, a genre that I love, literary memoir, uh, just being inspired by people like Mary Carr and Carl of Nosgaard and, um, and Christian writers. I love Frederick Buechner. And I, I just think memoir is a really powerful a powerful medium because uh, wherever the human story is told, uh, there's there's a universal connection, uh, and um, and and I, but I wanted to combine it with my obsession with the centrality of the cross, and and so it kind of moves back and forth between the seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross uh, in what I call. Um, uh, fragments and the fragments are these kind of significant moments in my own life history. Um, uh, it, being a kid that grew up in poverty in a depressed mill town, uh, just uh, just west of Portland, uh, Longview, Washington. If you guys have ever been there, it's like the center of the universe, but not. Um, and uh, um, I, I went through I went through two stepdads. I, my mom, uh, in the years that she was single, worked two jobs. So I was, I, I went through a lot of trauma as a as a kid. Uh, not good stepdads, poverty, uh, being a kid who wasn't didn't have a male role model in my life. Uh, I was the kid that loved dancing and singing. My favorite TV show in the '80s was Fame. And if you don't know what that is, you know what you missed out on a really great show. I actually tried to watch it recently. It does not hold up. Um, and. Uh, uh, but I just wanted to dance and sing. I won my sixth grade talent show, breakdancing. Uh, and, then, and then I started singing when I was 11, and my mom got saved in third grade, and I started singing with my mom. And my first experience singing where I knew, I'm like, this is what I want to do with my life, is when I sang at a funeral for a high school boy. I was 11, and he had, uh, he had died in a car accident, drunk driving after he was like the football star. And uh, this is a really macabre story, but it, this I just, was part of my, uh, what we're going to talk about today, which is radical vulnerability being so necessary. I just remember being in front of a casket, but I'd never seen, I'd never been at a funeral. I had no, I hadn't been touched by death. And so all I knew is that there was a front row filled with beautiful cheerleaders. And I had just gotten my first perm. I felt solid. Um, I, I wanted to look like Prince because Purple Rain was my favorite record, but I instead I looked like Kirk Cameron, solid Christian man. Um, and uh, I, and, and I just remember singing uh, Friends by Michael W. Smith, also known as Smitty by his more extreme fans. Uh, and I hit that chorus and those girls started to sob and I'm like, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. <laughs> Not realizing they were crying for their friend behind me. It's in the book actually, that's in the book. Uh, but I, working through all of this stuff, uh, brought me to this incredible question that I think often haunts Christians, which is, you know, why is there suffering? Why do we hurt? And how can we trust that God is good uh, when there's so much pain, uh, not only in our lives, but in the world around us? And I have come to the very strong conviction that what we need in the church is not a theology of suffering, because you don't need to look for suffering. It will find you. Uh, and, and we're never going to understand fully why we suffer. Uh, we don't, we're not told why, this, why the serpent's already in the garden. He's just there. And it doesn't matter. This is why the centrality of the cross is so important. Because remember what was prophesied is that the, the serpent would bite the heel of, the, of, of that promised one, the seed, 
Jesus, the Messiah, but he would crush his head. I don't need to know why I suffer. What I need to know is that there's a God who's done something about it, who's entered into it and understands my pain and understands the brokenness that I come from and loves me in spite of that. Uh, and I think that that is kind of the heartbeat of, of what this book is about. And it's really addressing this question that, of, of can we trust Jesus? And I believe that the cross is the only way, although it's the thing that is a stumbling block to those who are perishing, just remember the cross is also always a stumbling block for God's children as well. Because the world is very uneven ground and the cross is like stepping onto something so solid it like will throw your equilibrium off every time. And it will continually offend your, your, your senses and your sensibility around your own purpose and, your, and, and this deep desire that is built into us in a fallen world with fallen minds and a culture that constantly lies to us with all of its new priests and uh, the priestesses and prophets that come to us through social media offering us these kind of bespoke religions that, that want you to discover your best life now. And that's not a knock at Joel Osteen. That is the whole world of self-help. The cross is an absolute, uh, like, it, it diametrically opposed to that because it says there is no, there is no path um, to perfection. There is only me who is perfect, who has already done everything that needs to be done. The call upon the Christian life is to learn how to live in a daily dependence, giving up this glitchy vehicle we call ourselves to the king who is willing to commandeer us in spite of us. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, so what do I want to talk to you about today? Well, I've been on a radical a radical re-engagement with Door of Hope, and I want to draw from from my book to help us um, kind of uh, center in on, on something that I think is deeply needed in post-COVID. I don't even like to use that word. Um, I, in, this, in this time in which our country is absolutely polarized, not just our country, but the world, really, uh, and, and in a high, an age of hyper-victimization, uh, where the, 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 the demands that, that rage and, and cry out for justice um, are, are crying out for a justice, in my mind, that leads not to, um, to a gospel-centeredness, but is it is a justice that, is, that, that leads only to bitterness because it's an us-against-them mentality. And, and I want to I ask this question. I'm going to begin with this question. There's a quote um, that is attributed to Augustine, and it says this. It says, that he who has God has everything, he who has everything but God has nothing. He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. Is that a true or false statement? Go ahead. You think it's true? Really? Is it? Is that true? He who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. It's interesting that you would say that's true. I thought it was true too. I loved it. But it was, it was a trick question. That was a trick question. Um, the second half of the statement is true, but the first half is actually not true. And this kind of speaks to the worldview that we bring to our understanding of the gospel. God spoke over humanity in the garden, over Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, something very significant. 
And what we need to remember is that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, there was no fall yet. This is God speaking over humanity in an unfallen state. And Adam has God all to himself. And God, who just got done creating and saying again and again, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then before sin enters into the story, into the human story at least, because the serpent does seem to be there, uh, what does God say over Adam? This is fascinating. In Genesis 1, there's, there's no gap between the creation of man and woman. Um, it's in Genesis 2, there's a zoom in on day 6, and there's a strange gap. And I believe the gap is intentional uh, because God wants to remind you women that men are here to... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> You're like, I do not like this guy. Where is he going? <laughs> the gap is purposeful because it is there to show humanity, not men over women or women over men, to show human beings that we need others like ourselves to be complete. That, that God says over Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. That's Genesis 2.18. God says over his very good creation that Adam, you with me, without others like you is actually not good. So that statement by Augustine is wrong. The one who has God has everything. It's not that God doesn't possess everything that we need, but God has actually created us to not be complete without others like ourselves. And so, you know, when it says it's not good the man be alone, that's not just a statement about marriage, the marriage union, although it obviously speaks to that robustly for the next, the next thing. It says Adam finds no suitable helper, and that, uh, and that is a helper not to fulfill his dreams, but to, to, to come alongside and to work the two of them fulfilling that image of God. And the reason that we are not complete without others like ourselves, because we, unlike God, are not we're not a trinity. And someone say, well, we're tripartite. That's, I don't really care what you believe on that, whether you think we're, you know, spirit, body, uh, spirit, mind, body, spirit. However you break up, we're still not a community within ourselves. And if you are a community within yourselves as a human being, generally that means that you probably need psychiatric help. So, uh, so it, and it's true that actually in, in our fragmented world and in, in the age in which we live, uh, we are a, a menagerie of, of artificial needs. And there is a, a multitude of voices that are constantly vying for our affections and our attention. And, and the world wants you to, to believe that you are complete in yourself, but you're not. You're not even complete in yourself with God because when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment, what was his answer? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. That's the first. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's funny because this idea that Augustine put forth actually feeds into one of the great the, one of the great catechisms of the, of the Protestant church, the Westminster Catechism. And what's the, what's the one line that every, there's only one line that anyone knows from the Westminster Catechism. 
and it's uh, it's because it's a memorable one. And I think once again, it feeds into our own tendency toward an individualistic approach to the gospel, which is the chief end of man, not mankind, but man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. No. <laughs> yes, if we took it, if you actually knew the rest of the catechism, and I did go through and read it, it does speak pretty robustly to neighbor, but that's not what we know from that. What we think about is it's about my relationship with God and my primary responsibility is to bring glory to God. There is no bringing glory to God. There is no loving God without a, a robust love of neighbor. You can't separate the two. Now it's possible you can love, you can, you can love man and not love God, but I don't believe you can actually love God the way that God intended us to love him without loving him. Humanity, And so immediately then the question arises, then who is my neighbor? And your neighbor is anyone who's in front of you, behind you, next to you, at any given moment, in any given day. So this, this creates a lot of, lot of problems for us in, a, in, in an age in which the church is trying to fix the woes of society by getting in bed with politics. Some of you moved here to get away from progressive politics of Portland. And then I had friends that moved here and then they're like, Ben's not progressive or not conservative enough. And they're like, I got to move to Montana. And I'm like, have you not seen Yellowstone? That place is ran by the mafia. <laughs> Super violent, like 20 people die in Billings every day through execution style mafia activity. And like that actually doesn't, isn't happen. I'm like, I saw the documentary called Yellowstone. <laughs> I thought his name was Kevin Costner, but it's John Dutton, I guess. Um, my point is this, is that wherever you are, sin is right there with you. You can move to the Antarctica by yourself, and you actually will be violating one of the chief commands of how to know. You're not going to find God in, in isolation. This is one of the reasons I actually have a pretty high level of distrust for what are called the... Um, the desert fathers or the, a lot of the mystic, the Catholic contemplative mystics that, that believed that the best way to be close to God was to actually separate themselves from humanity. Actually, the best, the best contemplatives did not hold to that view, by the way. If you read Thomas Merton's The Seeds of Contemplation, one of the first things he said about solitude is solitude is for the purpose of the community. I get alone with God to be filled up so I can be poured out again for the other. And the moment you separate that is the moment you fall into the lies actually of not, of, of not some sort of false Christianity. You fall into the lies of actually what the world is presenting again and again. This is why it's, it's so, uh, if one of the things I love about literature is literature consistently points out the, uh, the cosmic loneliness that humanity feels in our hyper-individualistic age. Uh, another thing I wanna say about community, because I'm gonna get into practically what this means and connect it to the cross and, and even to the book, is this. This is really, um, I like that my timer has just been on 35. So I, I guess I still have 35. <laughs> it's not moved, it's not changed. I'm gonna go with that. Um, I have to constantly remind myself as a preacher, the words of Jesus, my wife thinks I, since I already have so many tattoos, I should just tattoo it on my forehead, um, is, uh, uh, is I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. <laughs> but I want to think about this. God is a, tr is, is a trinity. Uh, I, I, I love, I love 
the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity can't be explained. You know, if you do children's ministry, please don't explain to children that the Trinity is like an egg. It's, God is not like an egg. I promise. He's not like water. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, is, it is actually the closest thing I can come up with is like, the, how important is the Trinity to our understanding of the gospel? It actually is like the linchpin. And if you remove it, everything falls apart. Every great heresy that uh, like major branches that have broken off from Christianity, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, all do damage to the Trinity. That's the fundamental misstep, is they diminish the deity of Christ. They turn him into a created being, and all of a sudden you have like, all, you have the, like hyper-legalism uh, and, and a false understanding of the very nature of God. God is a community within himself, and what it means to be made in the image of God means that we are made fundamentally and first and foremost for a relationship. This is why I would define heaven as the restoration of relationship in three directions. And I would define hell as a place where relationship is not possible. Um, and so when you think about the Trinity, one of the things that the church fathers did that was very wise is how they defined the Trinity. And that is that they referred to God not as three, one God, three individuals. Have you ever read that? I've never read that. It's one God, what? Three what? Persons. The great Trinitarian theologian named uh, Colin Gunton, uh, who wrote a book called The Promise of um, a Trinitarian Faith, and he says that the use of the word person, person can be defined differently than individual. Individual is a modern concept that is my uniqueness defined by my separateness from others, where personhood is my uniqueness is discovered in, in relationship with others. This is why... This is why I don't even like to use the word individual in any kind of positive sense, although it's hard to escape in our modern vernacular. But personhood is a beautiful word because it speaks of, I discover the uniqueness. I actually was, I wrote to Phil and Diane, you know, growing up without a, I wrote to Phil, the first time a man ever said to me in my life that I'm proud of you uh, was when I preached at Solid Rock the first time I hadn't even been hired yet. And Phil called me immediately as he was leaving the parking lot and left a voicemail for me. He said, I'm so proud of you. Um, and I was like, oh my, and he's like, You're, he goes, you have a gift. And it was, he showed me a gifting that I wasn't sure I had. And I learned that gifting not through me alone thinking I'm, I have this awesomeness. That's why I don't trust people that are, that are self-appointed prophets. or you know, you know, people are like, I think I'm a worship leader. God told me I'm a worship leader. I'm like, sing for me. I'm like, well, you can't sing. So I don't know if that's true. Uh, people are like, I think I'm called to preach. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. If you're called to preach, God will call people to listen to you. If no one's called to listen to you, probably not called to preach. And they're like, what about Jeremiah? I'm like, don't throw that at me. Like, don't throw Old Testament prophets. They're, 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 they stand in their own, they get their own category. Uh, the fact is, is that we discover our uniqueness, our giftedness actually in context with relationship with others. Um, and, and one of the reasons we often hurt so much is because we don't know how to speak, uh, speak blessing into people's lives. We don't understand that we actually have, that our words carry prophetic power. Um, that's why a parent that says, it says to their kid over and over, don't be stupid. It's not surprising that the kid grows up thinking they're stupid. 
And, and, and this is the, the beauty of, of community is that our uniqueness is found in the context of community. So I'm just trying to set a really solid groundwork so you're still not thinking, I still think that that quote from Augustine is right. Um, and it's still at 35 minutes, so I feel like now we can start the message. No, I'm just joking. I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm well into it. Uh, so as a community of faith, how then does the cross center us? I want to just take you to a verse uh, that I have preached so many times that I've actually come up with like 20 to 30 different sermons for this verse because I think it carries so much power. And it's 1 Corinthians 1.23, and, and it's just these four words. Paul, now, Paul gives us this really interesting statement. He says, listen, the Jews seek after signs, and the Greeks seek after knowledge. He goes, but we preach Christ crucified. Four words that I would argue wield absolute authority for the Christian community. We preach Christ crucified. And think about what he said before that. This is fascinating. Think about the, the battles, theological battles within Christendom. And, and I think often the theological battles are, are raging between those that, that, are, that are obsessed with knowledge and those that are ex, uh, obsessed with experience. So you take like really, really hard hardline reformed theology, the, 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 the primary emphasis is the authority of the word of God um, and, and our responsibility is to protect orthodoxy at all costs. And so reformed theology has often been known. I've even heard, I've heard uh, Calvinist thinkers like Calvinists are often described as kind of bullies, but you have to be if you're going to protect the word of God. I'm like, well, you don't have to be. Um, but, uh, and then, then you get the other side, like really extreme Pentecostalism, really, really intense charismatic movements. The, the emphasis is all on experience. And, and the experience is supreme, at, often at the expense of Scripture. So you get like weird phrases that have no biblical grounding whatsoever about something that was experienced. And the experience becomes authoritative. Often people feel called to do things because they've been trained to trust whatever impression is put on their mind. And it's not grounded in the community nor in Scripture. And both of those extremes always lead to the same thing, I would argue. They always lead to a legalism. And, and pride. One is pride in knowledge. The other is pride in experience. The legalism is this is what it means to be a Christian. You follow, you do, you do these, you, you hold to this criteria, this creed, this interpretation of scripture. The other side leads to a legalism that says the marks of a true Christian is that you should be able to speak in tongues. You should, you should be seeing healings on a regular, you know, there's all these ways in which they create what I call ladder theology. And Jesus came to dismantle ladder theology, which isn't just found in the church. It's what the world presents as well. It's, the, it's that the, the things that we do to make ourselves feel like we're okay in the world. And so when you spiritualize that, you put that into a Christian context, often the things we do as Christians become a replacement for the Christ that actually defines our name. The reason I ended up being burnt out last year and being put on a forced sabbatical and I was on the verge of quitting Door of Hope, I think when I was here, even with, with Andrew last time, I'm like, would you hire me? And he kept saying yes, because he gets excitable, but he didn't, he didn't mean it. Um, I mean, he did, but not, I mean, he didn't put his money where the mouth was. 
Uh, and so I didn't have an offer when I left. So I don't think you really meant it. Um, he's like, it'd be sick if you were here. But that's just you. I still don't even know what the color of your eyes are because you smile so big. <laughs> and when he says something to you, you're like, I believe this guy. He really likes me. <laughs> um, but I was so burned out. I'm like, I got to get out of Portland. I, I can't stand this city anymore. And I love, I love Portland. I love Portland as a, I went to Portland every weekend as a high school kid. You know, I didn't come to faith till I was 27 years old. So, I mean, I was like the full on like little club kid in my early 20s and musician. And we went to Seattle. I met my wife in Portland. We, we had the dream. We came back to Portland uh, to work with Phil and Diane and John Mark. Uh, back in 2007 with the desire to plant something on the east side, which is where Darcy lived when I met her. She lived on Hawthorne. <laughs> My, the record label I was signed to was in Portland. I mean, it was, we understood it. We, you know, I mean, I, people always say like, like what makes you think you would be a, 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 you know, what made you feel like you made sense to be pastor in a church, a city like Portland? I'm like, well, how many pastors do you know that have a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo? I just feel like I've got a pretty solid, groundwork already um, for <laughs> like like I'm not really pushing anyone's envelope like that guy kind of just looks like one of us I don't know if we can trust him uh, but but I hit this point in ministry it's like I love the city and I began to hate it because Portland was so beautiful and clean I mean it's always been weird keep Portland weird it's like Portlandia was funny but kind of offensive uh, and and but now we're like beyond Thunderdome and if you haven't seen that movie, you were far too cloistered as a Christian child. Um, but if you know Mad Max, that's what it feels like. I mean, it's like you drive down Powell and it's like people, you know, with like battle axes and chains with like nails sticking out of their shoulders after a night on fentanyl and meth. And you're just like, why is this happening to my city? And it can make you so angry. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. And you know what I discovered? I was like, I've become like Jonah. I, and every time I tried to escape, Andrew didn't offer me a job. That was just another way that Jesus just vomited me right back up on the shore of Portland. And, uh, and, and coming out of my sabbatical, I had this great awakening to this reality. And it was in December. Um, first of all, I had created all sorts of ways of escaping ministry. And the reason I was trying to escape ministry is because I actually replaced Jesus with ministry. And this is where when we lose sight of the cross, when we fall into even our, either our orthodoxy or our experience, uh, when our orthodoxy feels like it's failing us or our experience isn't what we think it ought to be, then we hit this place of despair. And it's like you can have that, and you can have the Jonah attitude, which is for me, it's like I realize God's still going to accomplish through me what he wants to accomplish, but I'm like Jonah. I'm not excited about him impacting people positively through me anymore because I don't care about these people. I don't like these people. That was where I'd come to. I didn't realize it, that that's, that's where my heart had been. But some people that, you know, they may not get to the place where they dislike people, but they become like Elijah. And it's like God uses them powerfully, and then they end up in the wilderness wishing they could die because despair has taken over. And I think that that spirit of despair, that, that spirit of lovelessness has entered into the church in a way that has hurt us so deeply. And what the world needs to see is the church's return to the centrality of the cross. We preach Christ crucified means this. First of all, we, it's communal. It's communal. God spoke to me back in December, and he's just like, Josh, when did you, 
A, stop believing. I was doing it leading 21 days of morning prayer. In the early days of Door of Hope, I loved doing really radical things. I hired Tim Mackey for the Bible Project in 2012. The first thing I made him do, I'm like, hey, I got a great idea. What? He's like, what is it? I'm like, let's teach through the entire New Testament at 6 a.m. Monday through Friday for three months. And he's like, oh, okay, that sounds crazy. And I'm like, you want to do it? And he's like, I mean, I work for you. And I'm like, great, we're doing it. So we did it. And then I would do all-night prayer meetings every, every first Friday. And I did 21 days of prayer every other month, basically, where we get up every day, 6 a.m., and pray seven days a week, 6 a.m. at the church. And I love doing those things because it forced me to do them. The moment I said it to the church, I was kind of stuck doing it. And it was a great way to enter into the disciplines in the context of community. I actually think it's one of the best ways to practice spiritual disciplines um, because it keeps us anchored in this call to, to love God and love neighbor. Um, but something had happened where that just kind of dissipated. So I did this 21 days of prayer in teaching through Psalm 119. And that's when God began to really speak to me and people began to pray over me. And we began to sense a spiritual hunger. And I had actually stepped down as lead pastor. I was just going to be part-time. My book's coming out in January or February. I'm going to go, I'm going to speak travel speak and then just be at door of hope a couple Sundays a month and the Lord asked me the question while we were praying when did you stop believing in a vision of revival for Portland and when were you going to ask me if you should step down uh, and it was clear that the church had not accepted me stepping down because I was already being treated as if I was the lead pastor uh, because nothing else had been communicated and finally it was like Lord I don't want to end the story like Jonah I want to end the story um, in, in, with joy at what you're doing in people's lives. And God just gave me, a, it's funny how just, you know, when someone falls in love, like all of a sudden, even the car ride to work is like, is blessed with like a new lens. We are like, why is everything so beautiful today? And what, like the trees just seem extra green. And, you know, you're, you all become like Will Ferrell and in, in, in Elf when he busts into the office. Like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. It's like that kind of reality. That, and, and as Christians, it's, it's what would be called the sacramental caste. It's, it's learning to, to embrace this sort of idea of a sacred romance, a vision of how God is actually at work, how there are pinpoints of grace, even in the darkest places in our lives and in the world around us. We, we don't know, we need to learn how to attune our hearts and minds to those, those points. And so when I look at this verse, we preach Christ crucified, it, it speaks to First and foremost, Paul does not say I, he says we. That the call of the Christian life is a communal one. We have to be united in our vision for the kingdom of God and our desire to make King Jesus known, to make him known. We have to care about that. The whole church preaches the gospel. I do a ton of speaking for Luis Palau, and I had the opportunity um, uh, of being with him at the last festival. And I watched a man with stage four cancer on the verge of death get up in front of about 85,000 people in Madrid, the only country in Europe that's never actually had a revival, and preach the gospel, and probably 3,500, 4,500 people respond that night. And it was powerful. I stood behind him on the stage. It was incredible. But what I realized in that moment is it took Luis's personality to get that organization going, but it, I actually felt it in the depths of my being. It wouldn't matter, actually, who's preaching the gospel right now if they could preach it clearly. 
and they preached it with a believing heart. Because the thing that made the gospel presentation compelling is that if you think about, people ask me all the time, what do you think about mass evangelism? Does it have a place in today's world? I'm like, absolutely, because all mass evangelism is, is when it's done right, is God's people coming together in, a, in, an, in an outside venue um, and inviting all their non-believing friends. And you get, you get critical mass. You get, you get, you get if there's 85,000 people at that gathering in Madrid, I guarantee you at least 50,000 of those people were Christians already. But that's still 35,000 people that don't know Jesus and they are in a sea of people that have the spirit of God within them. What do you think makes the gospel message compelling? Is it Luis? Well, sure, he's one of the most charismatic human beings I've ever seen. But I've watched Andrew, his son, be just as effective because it's the people of God together with an expectancy that God is going to save. It's the belief in Jesus' own words, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It is the church together that preaches the gospel. This is why I still believe that the main responsibility of the church of Jesus is that we gather not to figure out how we can personally grow in our individual walks with Jesus. We gather to make the name of Jesus known to the city of Bend and to the city of Portland. Because if it's just about you and Jesus, you can stay home and watch the best preachers in the world in the comfort of your home without ever having to get ready or get up or get your kids together. And a lot of people stopped going to church during COVID because that's exactly what they thought the church was supposed to be about. And they're like, I don't need a building to do that. I love Jesus. I don't need the church. It's his bride. Never speak negatively about someone's bride. I promise it's the one thing that can bring wrath quickly. Um, I, I think that this is an important aspect. We, we do this. It's the body of Christ. And it's not just how we're each uniquely gifted. We're one body, many parts. That's all true. But it's the community together with a common vision. I want to see Jesus lifted up because when he's lifted up, you know, Door of Hope built its church not by transfer growth. We built our church through preaching the gospel continually and faithfully. In fact, I was the pastor that got known for, being, for telling people, do not come if you do not live here um, because we can't reach the people that we want to reach if the building's already full with people that are driving in from the suburbs. It just isn't going to work. And, and I remember how effective that message was because the first time I preached that, we lost like 400 people in one week. And I was like, dang, Lord, maybe I was a little snarky. <laughs> um, and and, and I'm, I'm glad because it forced us to be, to be evangelistic in, our, in what we said. I'm like, listen, just... You don't have to convince people to believe what you believe, but they should at the, at the bare minimum believe that you believe what you're telling them. <laughs> and you don't have to actually be the one that preaches some sort of sound doctrinal, because people want to know at the end of the day, does this Jesus actually do anything for me? Can he actually help me? And the way they're going to know the answer to that question is how you love them, how you love them. And that doesn't mean an abandoning truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth, but truth doesn't come before grace. Grace comes first, always comes first. And Jesus is the one that saves. We're just called to lift him up. Let him do the work. Let him do the heavy lifting. But how often do you invite people to come here to church? How often? If every one of you invited someone to come to River Bend for next weekend, I guarantee there would be no space in this room. Because here's the statistics, and I don't like reports uh, on 
church. Like, I, I, I can't stand Barna reports. I've met those guys. They're super nice. I just don't trust them. Because I feel like the people that write reports are people that actually aren't out sharing the gospel with people. They're like, I read the data, and the data said, it's like, you know, have you ever seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original one? when they ask the computer where the golden ticket is, and he's like, I'm now asking the computer where the golden ticket, like, that's how Christians act often, it's weird. And I'm like, because everything that I read in these reports has never been my experience in Portland. Portland should be the place where the people are so hostile to the gospel. In 14 years of leading this church, I've only had one person ever get mad at me for saying that I'm a pastor. Now it's true, they always think I'm a tattoo artist first, um, but that doesn't matter. The fact is, is that they're not hostile. They may not be, they may be indifferent. They may not be interested in coming to the church, but they're not like, like, how dare you invite me to church? Well, the, the data, um, uh, and it was Luis actually that shared it with me. They did a survey of, of, of about 4,000 people that were not Christians. And they asked all of them, if someone, if one of your friends was a believer and invited you to go to church with them, would you go? 80% said Yes. Then they did a survey of 4,500 Christians, and they said, how many of you invite your non-believing friends, neighbors, coworkers to go to church? And it was less than 3%. That speaks to some serious mission drift on the church's part. We preach. That word preach is so important because preach is confessional. It's, it speaks of introducing. It speaks of heralding. It's, it's that we, we do it together, but what we are as a church together is we are a confessional community. And I think one of the greatest um, problems that I see in American evangelicalism today is that we are still struggling with a Puritan hangover. And that is that we continue to believe that we need to present to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. And that's not what the world is interested. They're not interested in seeing you try to be something that you're not capable of being. <laughs> what they're interested in is you showing them what the power of Christ looks like in a flawed vehicle like yourself. And this is why I think that pastors are bombing out and failing all over. It's not because they haven't conquered their sin. It's because they're not confessing it. <laughs> and they're not modeling confession to their church. That's why I always like to say, you know, Portland, I hate cyclists. I just don't like them. I think they're smug and they think they're saving the environment, which means that it gives them the right to slow me down. And I like to break the law. I speed. I'm always speed. And I go, on one Sunday, I'm going to work, I'm driving down Cesar Chavez, and this stinking cyclist gets in front of me, like right in the middle of the road. And I'm just like, get out of my way. And I start getting mad, and I'm getting more and more agitated. And according to Jesus, it says that whoever is angry with their brother, we like the King James because it says without cause, but that actually isn't in the original manuscript. It's just whoever's angry with their brother um, is a murderer. So the... What that tells me about Jesus, uh, what Jesus is saying about you and I, is everybody's a murderer. That's what he's saying, which means we need Jesus. That's the point, to drive you back to that first beatitude. So I'm murdering this guy in my head, but then it goes beyond my head. It starts coming out of my mouth and my horn, and then it gets aggressive. Then I'm like, I actually would like to hurt you. And so I drive up next to him as close as possible, try to like actually push him off the road. And then I speed by and get by and I'm so mad. And I get to work, I get to, uh, I get to the, the church and I go outside before service starts and I see the stinking bike <laughs> in the bike rack at the church. So what do you do? What do you do as a pastor? 
nothing. You don't deny, you don't admit anything. Well, when you got a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo, it's very difficult to hide your, hide the fact that that was me that indeed drove by you like that. And I wasn't totally sure it was the right bicycle, but it sure looked like it. And I, I did the only thing that one should do in that scenario. I said, some of you need to learn that if you're a cyclist, you are not a car. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, listen, I want to just confess. I flipped off a cyclist today on the way to church. And, I'm, and I want you to know Jesus loves you. And he's not stoked on what I did. And I'm, I'm really sorry. I want to ask for your forgiveness if you're here. The person wasn't there because no one came forward and talked to me. But it, but it did something in the church that day. Is that, oh my gosh, my pastor is a human being. And what I point out is I didn't, try to, I didn't try to sugarcoat it. I didn't try to downplay it. I didn't even try to turn it into a joke through, you know, self-deprecating humor, which often is a way of keeping people still at arm's length. No, what I tried to show is like, listen, I'm a human being. I get angry like everybody else. I have struggles. I have, I have, I have areas where there's mental glitches. I, I, I fail in these arenas. This is where I'm difficult to be married to. And the more I confess those things, the more I actually find power over them. Confession Actually, confession of sin becomes the very place where we meet Jesus the most powerfully. The refusal to confess sin is actually the thing that hides Jesus from us the most powerfully. And it actually hides Jesus from the people that come in to meet him because God's people are living in hiding. And the whole response to sin in the garden, the first response was to hide, was to hide. The gospel is about liberation Jesus setting us free from the need to be free from the difficulty of life because what we need is him. And as we have him, we move into the community. So to preach Christ crucified is to be a confessional community. And I'm not talking you just go up to strangers and like share all your brokenness. Uh, like you don't want to overshare. You're like, that guy is way too comfortable sharing things. I will overshare as a pastor because I think this point is so important. I would love to see the church function far more like an AA meeting than a place where people come and pretend like they've got all their stuff together. Because I've been a pastor long enough to know that I'm watching marriages crumble and they're waiting till the very end till it's too late to save it um, because they can't, they, they don't want to be viewed as people that have those kinds of problems. Why do you think Rabbi Zacharias fell the way that he did after he died? I don't think that that man started his, I think, first of all, what a dumb conversation to ask whether or not he was saved. And if you don't know, he was a famous evangel uh, apologetist, very influential on me. I'm very close friends with one of his closest friends who had no idea and was on the board for 15 years. But it came out that he was an absolute, he used his power to, to, to take advantage of women. Uh, and is very, very dark and very upsetting. But I believe that he fell into that trapping. First of all, believing your own press that you're as smart as everyone says you are. And then to live in isolation from the community, traveling constantly with no anchor in a local community. And then to live in this place where I now, I'd, 
I can't, I don't know where, when that line was crossed, but there was a point probably at first where I'm like, I hate myself. I can never forgive myself for this, but then you do it again and nothing happens. And my ministry still is just as powerful as it was before. Actually, it might be more powerful. And you start looking at the fruit of your ministry as a way of excusing unconfessed sin until ultimately you think you got away with it. And then you die and you're confronted with Jesus who we're told nothing will be hidden from him. And guess who gets to deal with it? His wife his kids, and all the, all the ways that non-Christian world looks and says, here is an example, once again, of the ways that Christians are not normal people. And we should be not normal for the right reasons, but we're often not normal for the wrong reasons. Because we don't, we're not Stepford wives. That's what cults do. Uh, we're, we're meant to be real and authentic. And I'm not talking about being gritty or edgy for the sake of being edgy. I'm just talking about being honest. Like, do you have people that you confess your brokenness to? Guys, do you have people that you tell when you're struggling with lust and pornography? Do you tell people if you have an anger issue? Are you willing as couples to share that your marriage is maybe not doing as well as you thought or that your, your kids are wayward? Are you so embarrassed? Like if I was to tell them that, they would judge me. Listen, a community that's driven by grace shouldn't be in the business of judging. We should be in the business of restoratively loving people toward the reality of what Jesus sees them as. The act of Christianity... Is, is this. It's learning to become what God already declares that we are. <laughs> we're not working toward a goal. We're working from it. Jesus is the victorious one. So when we preach Christ, what the world is looking for is an authenticity. I don't care if you know every answer. I don't care if you, you've read your Bible a million times and you have all your theological I's dotted and T's crossed. It doesn't matter if it isn't connected to the reality of how has the gospel actually impacted your personal life? And do you know the Jesus that you talk about? Which means we preach Christ. It means that we're not just a confessional community, but there's actually something, there's a reason why we confess our brokenness. And it's not because we want to get things off our chest. It's because we want to draw near to the one who's done everything that needs to be done for us to be right with God. That confessional reality should lead us into the authentic relationship because the most important question that you must ask yourself is not how much do I know about Jesus? How much do I do for Jesus? The goal is not arriving, it's knowing. It's knowing. The goal isn't even sinning less, it's actually loving more, which leads to sinning less. And so I, I want to just encourage you that relational, we are preaching a Jesus that we, we know and, and we are known not only by him, but by one another. And this strengthens the witness to a lost world. You know why the Jesus movement was so compelling? It's because it was a bunch of unrefined hippies who were sleeping around doing drugs and the church had turned their backs on them. Many mainline denominations said these kids are lost. They're going to hell. We just need to hunker down and protect what we have. And God says, I will choose the most foolish thing I can think of, a, a, a false ideology that was leading nowhere 
I mean, the death of hippiedom came the summer of 1969 at the Altamont Speedway with the Rolling Stones. They call that the death of, of the hippie movement when, when the Hells Angels actually killed a black man in front of the Rolling Stones while they were performing, showing that the summer of love was not actually all that it was cracked up to be. And the Jesus movement was birthed out of God grabbing a hold of people that didn't know anything, but they knew what they had been saved from. They knew what they had been saved from. And that's one of the things, one of the few ways that I'm grateful that God waited to save me until I was 27 years old. I'm like, I knew he who's been forgiven much loves much. But man, if you've grown up in the church, you can still know how much you've been forgiven because we're not just called to be confessional or uh, we're not just called to be relational. We don't just talk about Jesus, but we can't talk about Jesus without talking about what he did. And this is the heartbeat of this book is that the cross is the great neutralizing reality that transforms everything because it puts everybody on the same playing field. We don't get to be the right against the left or the left against the right. We don't get to, to plant our flag in capitalism or socialism or Marxism. We don't get to say our, plant our flag in democracy. We plant our flag actually in allegiance to a dictator and his kingdom. And my allegiance is to his kingdom first. And my, my allegiance as an American citizen is only that I might live as peaceably as possible to share the gospel with as many as possible. That's it. And no matter what happens to this country, that, that role does not change. <laughs> I am called to live as peaceably as possible at all times to bring as many to, a, 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 to be a conduit so that as many as possible can meet the living Christ. I'm not responsible for saving them. I'm just responsible for lifting them up. And he says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Remember this, drawing doesn't mean that everyone gets saved. Drawing can, everyone is drawn to Jesus that meets him. They're just, the response is actually quite different. Look at the two thieves on the cross. One's drawn to a place of even greater hostility, doubling down on his individualism and the lie of the shadow self. The other the other is drawn to the innocence of Jesus and casts all of his hope on him in a final moment of despair and, and hope. I got nothing to lose. Jesus, remember me. That blows up all our grids, doesn't it? This is the beauty of the cross, is the cross is a reminder that Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place. The cross is the place where the victim and the victimizer is died for. The cross is the place where we can actually find healing in those impossible relationships. I close with this story. My dad, my book actually follows the arc of my relationship with my father. My father left my mom, uh, my mom and my, my dad divorced when I was one. Uh, and my dad spent a lifelong pursuit of wealth through illegal means leading to a lifelong addiction to both cocaine and, and alcoholism and I mean, the man smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day. At the end of his life, he lived alone in a cabin. He couldn't walk. He would sit in his own mess. He lived in worse condition than most people I see on the streets in Portland. He lived in a, isolated in a cabin. And in 2020, I had been began pushing into my relationship with him in about 2012 because I was here I was leading a church that was exploding with young people and, and, and they were looking at me as some kind of spiritual father and I'm really like, I don't even understand what it means to have a father. I don't, I'm struggling to know how to be a father and I'm like, and I'm refusing a relationship with my father. And so I, 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 I just came across that, you know, that unfortunate verse in the Ten Commandments 
uh, honor your mother and father. And once again, no contingency. Uh, and at first I was like, why? It should say honor them if they're awesome. And then once you become a dad, you're really grateful it does not say that. And, 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 I, and so I, I reconnected with my dad. And at first I was just sharing the gospel. And he'd get so mad at me. He'd like swear at me, yell the F word at me, like hang up. 2019, I go up and see, stay with him. And first story in my book is me sitting with my dad and, and me bringing up with him my earliest memory, which is my mom and him fighting over me and my mom hitting my dad with a rock while I'm in the back of the car uh, crying, at, screaming, mommy, don't let him take me because my dad was so drunk and, I, and my mom was so terrified that it terrified me. And I asked my dad about it and here he is on a breathing tube, you know, he's dying and he, he goes, I'm still pissed at you for that, Joshua. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that you didn't want to be with me. And I'm like, I was too. And he goes, I'm still pissed. And I just remember us sitting in silence, awkwardly sitting there, and me being like, how could he say something so insane? And then it just struck me. The Holy Spirit struck me that I was his priest in that moment. And he was confessing a real brokenness, something that was really lost. And no matter how absurd the words were, he, he felt something deep. Like it, he felt this affront, like I didn't want to be with him. And I remember I looked over at him and he was looking out the window at the, and it was the permanent twilight. It doesn't get light in the winter in Alaska. And it was like 40 below. And I was trapped in this smoke-filled cabin. It was like hell on earth. And, my, and I just looked at my dad and I saw him like a little kid. And I just said, Dad, I'm sorry. And he said, it's okay, Joshua. I, I love you. Your old man's usually tougher than this. And I said, I know, Dad. And then we were watching Little House in the Prairie. And there was an episode where Pa Ingalls is in a field praying for his son um, who's dying. And an angel appears to him and tells him, that he's gonna be healed. And I remember I felt like it was some kind of sign and I prayed that God would save my dad. And in 2020, he did. My dad was primitive faith, like man on the cross, thief on the cross. I asked him about his salvation. He goes, I'm not sure it's stuck. And I'm like, I think God's grace is stickier than your doubt. And I, and I asked him, why do you not think it's stuck? And he's like, I can't do anything. I can't walk. And I'm like, dad, you're far past that. Jesus has pursued you to the grave. But last year in February, just a couple weeks ago, February 8th last year, I got a call that my, it's February 7th, my dad was, was um, back in the ICU. And that this time they recommended not putting, not intubating him, but putting him on comfort care. And I asked how long I had. And, they, and he said, you know, your dad's tough. I would imagine he'll make it till tomorrow. I got the phone at 6.30 p.m. I got on a plane in Seattle. I drove to Portland in like two hours. I broke every law known to man. And I got on a plane in Seattle at nine, flew to Anchorage, got there at 5 a.m. And then at 5.30 a.m. caught a flight to Kenai. And at 6.30 a.m. I, I was in a car in a blizzard uh, driving to the hospital in Soldotna. And at 7 a.m. I was by my dad's side and he was there and he was the cleanest I'd ever seen him. And his, his hair, he was all bathed and and it was quiet and it, it was peaceful. And I walked in and I put a song on that I wrote called Home a couple weeks before. And I, I kind of had this weird feeling. I'm like, I don't know what the song's for. And I realized in that moment that God gave it to me for my dad. And I put the phone up by his head and I turned the song on. And the moment he heard my voice, he just started to cry. 
and he, he was coming out of this morphine slumber and he was able to communicate, couldn't talk, and he was able to communicate to me by squeezing my hand. A few hours later, um, the nurse, he told me that um, dad was, was getting close, his breathing, there was like these long spaces between breath. It was like, it's like every breath was like his body, like dying again and again. It was in, it, that, I mean, if you know the sound of the death rattle, it's a terrible sound. And, and I saw the breath was getting so short, I'm like, it's close. And so I put the song on again, and this time he opened his eyes. And he looked right into my face, and he was panicked. And I remember this horrible, I got it, I can't watch this, it's too much for me. And I remember putting my hand by his cheek. And just saying, Dad, I love you. I'm, I'm here with you. And this peace came over him. And he just looked into my eyes. And I didn't move. I kept my face like, like six inches from his. And like 30 seconds before the song was done, he took his last breath. And I, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't finish my book. It's because I needed that story. Um, because the final statement from the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I realized... I couldn't speak to rest. I had to actually live it. And I believe in that moment, it was a holy moment. I felt Jesus' presence more fully, robustly in that moment in which I loved God and I loved my neighbor, which is my father, who never apologized for anything, who never, <laughs> who stayed rough and was a curmudgeon, but God gave me love for him. And I was able to be there with him, his son, and I believe with all of my heart that what my dad saw when he looked into my face was Jesus. Man of mixture that I am. You guys, this is what the world is looking for because we all know the Alexanders in the world. We all have got someone like my dad. And there are all these people hurting around us. And there's all these people hurting right here. And we're so closed off and we're so private. And Jesus wants us to break free. He wants us to be okay with weeping. In front. I hate crying in front of people. Um, my wife said it's beautiful because I do it so rarely. Um, but uh, but it's, God wants us to be real. That's the thing that the world's looking for. Like, how is this different? And what we say is we don't know why we suffer, but we believe Jesus has done something about it. Because we preach Christ crucified in the cross is a place where we are reminded again and again, whatever game God is playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. That Jesus has taken human suffering into himself. And because of that, we can trust that he is able to take the dissonant notes of our existence and weave them into his redemptive song. That's the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for calling us to be a people who recognize that we are not meant to be alone. We aren't even meant to be just alone with you, but we actually find our intimacy with you through our surrender of our lives for the good of those around us. And the more we move away from that obsession of trying to figure out what's best for me in this moment, the more we discover the beauty of what it means to be poured out for others, because there is never an end to the supply of grace. Grace is always unfair. It's always unfair.
because it is love without contingency. It comes toward us, not because we deserve it, but because it's your nature to love us in spite of ourselves. And I pray for everyone here. Lord, for those that want revival, want awakening, want to know your presence in, in just a, a deeper way, who, who recognize that there's many areas in their lives that are still hiding from you. Lord, just like you convicted me a couple months ago that my personality doesn't do alcohol well and giving it up, the freedom that was found in giving up something that I enjoyed, but I enjoyed it because it helped me escape from you and from the responsibility to you. And Lord, all of us have different things. We don't apply things evenly across the grid. Uh, we all have things that we use to escape the difficulty of life, but I pray that you would help us reorder our lives around you as the center. And I pray that we would be honest with each other about where we're broken so that we can discover that forgiveness is not something that we're trying to get from you. It's, it's something we're moving into that's already totally done. We are forgiven. And we thank you for that, Jesus. And so for my brothers and sisters here, I just pray right now. I just want to ask if you're here and you just want, you just recognize, like, I just, there's just something lacking spiritually for me. There's a, there's a, Maybe I'm not even hungry, but I just want more of Jesus. I, and there's, I know there's areas I'm scared to lay down. There's relationships I'm afraid to go into. I, maybe you're afraid to, to be um, a person that shares the love of Jesus. Maybe you don't feel confident in that relationship. I just want to encourage you, man, stand up where you're at so that I can pray for you right now. If that's you, just stand up where you're at. And... and Man, this is the beauty, calling a congregation to be confessionals. We live openly. It's okay to say, man, I don't feel like I love Jesus. Will you pray for me to give me love, to love him? This is how we help each other as we get honest about the fact that we're actually much worse than we like to admit. <laughs> I like to remind people every time, you're not a bigger disappointment than God already knows that you are. What a encouraging word. Um, Jesus loves you. On your worst day, he's crazy about you. Uh, and, and I just encourage you, as you, as you um, stand there, and for everyone who is sitting, uh, and everyone is standing, I just ask you to open your hands with your hands open toward the heavens, like a child that comes empty-handed into a good father. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask? And I just want to pray over you that you would hunger for Jesus more than you hunger for the things of this world. That you would hunger to know Jesus and to be a conduit for his love to others than you would in that hunger and pursuit of self-knowledge and self-fulfillment. Because your fulfillment's actually found in loving Jesus and loving others. So Lord Jesus, I pray over my brothers and sisters in this community, would you give them a spiritual hunger that brings about an awakening in the city of Bend. I pray for power of your Holy Spirit upon Andrew and the staff and the elders, but I pray for power upon the community for it is the whole community together. We preach Christ crucified. Would they hunger for you more than they hunger for the things of this world? Would they hunger for the things that matter most? And would they lay down the things that actually get in the way of your kingdom purposes being fulfilled in their lives? So Lord Jesus, I thank you for this hunger here. I sense it and I pray blessing on them. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen, amen.